Today's Encore broadcast was originally recorded on July 19th, 2022. I've used every power I have as president to continue to fulfill my pledge to move toward dealing with global warming. Why don't you use every power that you have of the president to speak up a little bit? Would it kill you? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. It's only the fate of the world at I stake. I got the feeling that something right. Good Lord. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yes, here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York, on WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Boy, it's hot out there. Um, I'm just guessing. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, is KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the Internet to the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, probably. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow... Says me from bradblog.com, swelling up as ever today. Thank you for joining us. I don't even know what that means. Thank you for joining us uh, once again for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Uh, you know, uh, given the blistering, blistering temperatures across the globe this week, uh, Desi Doyen, I actually feel a little bit bad. Why is that? Well, because we sort of live in one of the places where it isn't horrific. Yeah, and that little narrow strip next to the coast. Next to the coast uh, down here in Southern California is actually quite lovely. But it's still warm, but it's not but nearly not the like 10 to 15 degrees above normal that everybody else everyone is Everyone else, today. it seems like. Yeah, I mean, the heat everywhere else, uh, given that and the dirty fossil fuel industry's big recent wins... At the corrupt Supreme Court and from the the corrupt Joe Manchin, not to mention uh, their own corruption when it comes to war profiteering and inflation on gas that they're just sort of, you know, they're they're making record profits. The oil companies. Yes, they are. Off the backs of consumers. Right. So that tells you that this is not because there is some shortage of supply or anything else. It tells you that they are war profiteering, basically. Anyway, with all of that, it's sort of turning into climate week. Around here, uh, at least on the broadcast, uh, we pick up today where we left off on our previous program, warning about the simultaneous heat waves going on around the world all at once. And they're all really, really bad. 
spreading to Europe on Tuesday. That's getting a lot of notice today. And all of this, of course, after Senator Joe Manchin once again pulled the football from Charlie Brown after months of negotiating a climate package with his fellow Democrats, only to screw him over once again, even though they gave him pretty much every single thing that he wanted in that package. Nonetheless, sure enough, today, this uh, William Booth at Washington Post writing from London asks, has it ever in human history been this hot in the British Isles? Maybe not, he answers his own question. If you want to mark an unnatural, scary, real-world data point for climate change, he argues today, it is here in Britain right now, which saw its hottest day on record Tuesday with temperatures uh, hitting 40.2 Celsius, or 40C as they like to call it, or as we like to call it, higher than 104 degrees Fahrenheit at London's Heathrow Airport. It's an extreme weather episode, he writes, not seen since modern record-keeping began a century and a half ago, and probably... Not since weather observation got serious here in 1659, and he adds, maybe far longer. Now, here in the U.S., we're used to citing, uh, you know, one heat record after another. We always say, uh, quote, since record keeping began, which uh, for us is usually sometime around, what, the 1800s or so, Desiree? 1880s for most climate measurements, yes. And that would be instrument measurements, not just somebody observing it and making a note. Right. And, well, the Brits apparently have been at it far, far longer. (laughs) Yes, they have. Uh, Hitting 40C, uh, writes uh, Booth, for British climate scientists is a kind of unicorn event that had appeared in their models, but until recently it seemed almost unbelievable and unattainable any time this soon. Cairo, Karachi, Phoenix, they are world-beating furnaces, he writes. But London, the high-latitude city with its recorded history dating back to the Romans, had probably never before experienced temperatures such as those that they are seeing on Tuesday. He says, surely no Britons alive now or their Britain-based great or great-great-grandparents had felt 40C without traveling abroad. Queen Victoria, William Shakespeare, Henry VIII, they probably never faced down a 40C day within the British Isles. This nation, he writes, was not built to withstand such heat. Its homes, workplaces, roads, rails, hospitals, and infrastructure were constructed for temperate weather, not this inferno. He writes, Monday night was already the warmest night recorded in Britain, according to provisional figures. Britain, notes Booth, has some of the most extensive weather records in the world, logged via diaries, observation, and instruments as far back as the Age of Enlightenment including daily records archived since the 1770s and monthly maximums and minimums dating back to the 1660s. The 1660s, Desi Doyen. I know. And they they have never had a day like they had on Tuesday. Until Tuesday, the highest official temperature was 38.7 C, or... 101.7 Fahrenheit, recorded at the Cambridge Botanic Garden on July 25, 2019. So pretty recently, actually. 
The UK's Met Office reported that at least 29 observation sites across England topped that maximum uh, that previous maximum on Tuesday. Now, to help put this into perspective, yes. when it comes to latitude, London is at a farther north latitude than Calgary, Canada. Really? So, yes, it, it should not ever get this warm. Researchers at the Met Office in the UK have reported that in the natural climate of the pre-industrial world, there might be one day in every 7,000 years that Britain could face 40 C. According to the UK's current climate models in our climate-changing world, a 40C day could happen now once every 15 years by 2100 if countries meet their carbon emissions promises, or once every three or four years if they continue to emit as much pollution as they do currently today. Got that? Once every three to four years. Simon Lee, an atmospheric scientist at Columbia, and I think it'll be more frequent than that, just saying. Yeah, probably. Uh, atmospheric scientist at Columbia University who was born and raised in North Yorkshire, England, wrote on his blog that the idea of 40C was a, quote, seemingly unthinkable temperature for a country with an aging population which does not have widespread residential air conditioning. But, quote... Everything changed on June 30, he said, with the publication of a global ensemble forecast system model dotted with 40C across across southeastern England. Given that the UK's previous hottest days had only been uh, 38C, exceeded very locally, this was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. Scientists were initially skeptical about the forecast, but they are no more. Hannah Cloak at the University of Reading told The Post, quote, We thought the models were wrong. But today, we are sitting in the middle of a changing climate. It is unprecedented, she said, this kind of forecast where we might see and feel something we have never experienced here before. But please note that uh, that point uh, that Desi underscored there about the temperatures exceeding 40 C or, or 104 Fahrenheit in the UK only every 15 years or so by 2100. Best if, case scenario. If, right. If the countries meet their carbon emissions uh, promises or just once every three or four years if they continue to emit uh, as much pollution as they do today. Well, that if there is doing a whole whole lot of work. As we have been uh, reporting for some time on our Green News report, uh, many nations, including the U.S., are coming nowhere near those targets. Perhaps I should say especially here in the U.S., where every effort so far by Democrats and the Biden administration has been scuttled, by the U.S. Supreme Court, whose far-right Republican, not in the least conservative activist majority, merely made up a new doctrine to prevent the EPA from regulating greenhouse gas emissions, despite the statutory directive of the Clean Air Act, or by one so-called Democratic senator by the name of Joe Manchin, who has blocked several unprecedented landmark progressive plans to move our nation off of dangerous, dirty fossil fuels to clean, renewable energy. So what can be done now? Well, President Biden has promised executive actions. You heard him sort of whisper that at the very top of the show today. Uh, what are those actions exactly and how much of a difference could they actually make in the nation with the world's highest per capita emissions of climate warming gases? 
And also the one that's responsible for the most historical emissions. Correct. So uh, as promised on yesterday's broadcast, we will have an expert here today to help us out with some of those questions momentarily. Climate researcher Dr. Leah Stokes of UC Santa Barbara will be here. And because by all signs, we could be living through the hottest overall week on planet Earth since the dawn of man. Well, Desi Doyen will also be back a bit later with uh, more on all of this in our latest Green News report. See, told you, Climate <laughs> Week. Yeah. But quickly, before we get to all of that, voters headed to the polls on Tuesday in the great state of Maryland, the only state holding midterm primary elections for uh, statewide office and Congress on Tuesday after their primary was pushed back three weeks in the wake of the court battle over Democrats gerrymandering a congressional seat. To, to their advantage. Of course, when it's Democrats who do that, unlike when Republicans do that, uh, the courts tend to rule against the Democrats, as Maryland's high court did here. But in any event, with uh, term limitations on the office of governor in the state, there is now a highly competitive contest on both sides of the political primary aisle to replace Maryland's popular Republican governor, Larry Hogan. As AP reports, the race has drawn the attention of former President Donald Trump, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, even Oprah Winfrey, apparently. As voters on Tuesday choose nominees in statewide legislative and congressional races, the pivotal governor's race in Maryland takes top billing. In one of the few states this year where Democrats believe that they have a good chance of flipping a gubernatorial seat from red to blue. Hogan is a rare two-term Republican governor in a Democratic-leaning state who uh, won plaudits from both sides of the aisle for his bipartisan approach, his willingness to challenge Donald Trump. And with his legacy on the line, he has endorsed uh, to fill uh, his favorite to uh, fill his own seat. In the state's Republican gubernatorial primary, a woman who served as both labor and commerce secretaries in his administration, who goes by the name of Kelly Schultz, she faces a challenge from uh, another Republican named Dan Cox, who is backed by Donald Trump. He's a state legislator who actually sued Larry Hogan over his pandemic policies, and later he sought to unsuccessfully impeach him. Hogan has criticized Cox for organizing busloads of Trump supporters to go to D.C. on January 6, 2021, for the Stop the Steal rally that preceded the insurrection at the Capitol. For his part, Cox has claimed, well, he didn't go to the Capitol himself and he left before any of the rioting began. But in a tweet that he later deleted, Cox called then Vice President Mike Pence a, quote, traitor, a traitor. I guess, for refusing to help Donald Trump steal the election. Uh, meanwhile, Trump has branded Schultz and Hogan as rhinos or Republicans in name only. In a statement late on Monday night, uh, Trump said, get rid of shutdown rhino Larry Hogan, <laughs> who's trying to get another rhino into office, Kelly Schultz. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, Tom Perez the former U.S. Labor Secretary and former Democratic Party chair. He has the backing of Nancy Pelosi, who is uh, from uh, Baltimore. Uh, best-selling author Wes Moore has, support, has the support of Oprah Winfrey. 
and uh, and of U.S. Congressman Steny Hoyer, the number two House Democrat. So, so a split there between uh, Pelosi and Hoyer. Other top candidates include uh, Comptroller P- Peter Franchot, or Franchot, don't know how he says it, former Attorney General Doug Gansler and former U.S. Education Secretary uh, John B. King Jr. There are apparently 10 candidates in all seeking the Democratic nomination for governor. So you can see there's a lot of interest in this race for governor in Maryland. Perez has support from labor unions, Moore, the, the former CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, an anti-poverty group, has been endorsed by the state's teachers union and two top Maryland legislative leaders, Franchot, Francho, don't know, uh, who comfortably won four races to be the state's tax collector, brings significant name recognition to the primary. Gansler, uh, a longtime prosecutor, he's running as a moderate. King served in President Barack Obama's cabinet, so it sort of seems like a, uh, a, a jump ball here, potentially on both sides of the aisle. So, this, And that means that they could be close. That's one of the reasons for these big name endorsements that we're seeing uh, on all sides in this race. The Republican primary notes AP provides a potential 2024 preview of the appeal of candidates, either in the mold of, let's call him moderate or not insane, Larry Hogan versus candidates in the model of Donald Trump. There's also races for the U.S. Senate, U.S. House, Attorney General. Uh, But really, all eyes are on that gubernatorial race on Tuesday. And while I would usually tell you that we'll have any noteworthy results available for you on our next broadcast, it's actually unclear how many such results will be available on our next broadcast. It could take days or longer to determine the winners in the most closely contested races. That is always true, but even more so here in Maryland, because for some reason, Maryland law prohibits counties from opening mail ballots until the Thursday after Election Day for some reason. Why? I have no idea. But that's current Maryland law. So, so they can't even open and can't even open them. process and verify the signatures is a very time consuming, laborious not. process. Wow. Yeah. So uh, not I, very efficient. No. And especially with more and more people voting by mail these days. Yes. So we will see what noteworthy results are, in fact, available by tomorrow's broadcast. But we'll We'll have for you whatever we have for you whenever we have it. And I will tell you, you know, as I suspect, uh, we'll discuss with my guest in a minute. Races for governor are as important as ever this year, not only because a MAGA Trumper like Dan Cox might be able to help a Republican steal the next presidential election in Maryland, you know, by refusing to certify a Democratic win in the state, but also because it may be up to governors at this point to take the lead, the, the, the actions necessary to stave off the worst of our worsening climate crisis right now. Once again, with the federal government sort of just uh, just completely out of commission. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, let's take a quick break. We'll come back with more on that with the great Dr. Leah Stokes. She is next on the broadcast. I am Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only one that keeps us here. Thank you. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. 
Where do we go? Someone tell me. Maybe my guest will momentarily. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. As uh, as noted earlier, Britain on Tuesday shattered its record for highest temperature ever registered amid a heat wave that has seared swaths of Europe. As the UK's national weather forecaster said, such highs are now a fact of life in a country ill-prepared For such extremes, the typically temperate nation was just the latest to be walloped by unusually hot, dry weather that has triggered wildfires from Portugal to the Balkans and led to hundreds of heat-related deaths, including more than 1,000 in Portugal and Spain. Images of flames racing toward a French beach and Britain's sweltering, even at the seaside, have driven home concerns about climate change. Well, not a moment too soon. Britain, take your time. The UK Met Office Weather Agency registered a provisional reading of 40.3 degrees Celsius. That's 104.5 degrees Fahrenheit in Coningsby in eastern England. Before Tuesday, the highest uh, temperature record recorded in Britain was 101.7 degrees Fahrenheit. That was set in 2019. By later afternoon on Tuesday, 29 places in the U.K. had broken the record. As the nation watched with a combination of horror and fascination, Met Office Chief Scientist Stephen Belcher said such temperatures in Britain were, quote, virtually impossible without human-driven climate change. Research conducted here at the Met Office has demonstrated that it's virtually impossible for the UK to experience 40 degrees C in an undisrupted climate. But climate change driven by greenhouse gases has made these extreme temperatures possible, and we're actually seeing that possibility now. Of course, it wasn't just in Europe and the UK. We also noted yesterday on the broadcast record temperatures across China, and yes, back here in the US this week, with wildfires and power outages to go with them as conditions have become downright apocalyptic in a number of places across the globe. All of which, of course, climate scientists have long been warning us about while urging politicians to take the now desperately needed measures to curb the burning of fossil fuels, which is causing our quickly worsening man-made climate crisis. Despite tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars in fossil fuel industry profits poured into misleading the public and into the campaign coffers of Republican politicians who are dead set on continuing this deadly game, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party in Congress have tried relentlessly to adopt landmark progressive measures to curb the use of fossil fuels, to move to renewables Uh, in order to keep Biden's promise to decrease emissions 50 percent below 2005 levels by 2030 in hopes of putting us on a path toward net zero emissions by 2050. But that effort has been blocked at every turn, not only by Republicans, but by one corrupt so-called Democratic U.S. Senator by the name of Joe Manchin of Coal State, West Virginia, where he and his family literally rake in millions of dollars each year from their family-owned coal business 
And at the end of uh, last month, it was also blocked by the U.S. Supreme Court, whose corrupt far-right activist majority simply made up a never-before-used, found nowhere in the Constitution or American case law doctrine in order to prevent the EPA from carrying out the federal statutory mandates of the Clean Air Act to reduce dangerous climate change-causing pollution. So what now? Well, great question. It's one I will speak to my guest about momentarily, and she better have answers for us. No pressure. Shortly after, Senator Joe Manchin yet again pulled a Lucy with the football, yanking it back from Charlie Brown Democrats uh, by reneging on a deal that centered on climate and health care, carefully negotiated for months with the corrupt West Virginia senator to meet every single one of his bad faith requirements last week. Well, right after that, President Joe Biden, while traveling in the Middle East, was asked by reporters about Manchin once again scuttling another climate deal. On the issue of climate, Joe Manchin obviously made significant news right now, which appears to be torpedoing what was one of your biggest priorities as it relates to energy and to climate back at home. Your message to those Americans right now who are looking for that relief that would have a wide impact as it affects the climate and energy specifically. I am not going away. I use every power I have as president to continue to fulfill my pledge to move toward dealing with global warming. Thank you. Mr. Very President, much. the president then released a statement shortly thereafter committing to using executive action to take on the climate crisis. Let me be clear, he said, if the Senate will not move to tackle the climate crisis and strengthen our domestic clean energy industry, I will take strong executive action to meet this moment, with the president adding, my actions will create jobs, improve our energy security, bolster domestic manufacturing and supply chains, protect us from oil and gas price hikes in the future, and address climate change. But what exactly can a president do to tackle a long-term problem like climate change with the considerable, if short-term, powers of presidential executive orders? Can such orders actually bend the deadly emissions curve that so desperately needs bending to have any hopes at this point of mitigating the worst effects of climate change in a world where I fear we ain't seen nothing yet? And even if so, can those executive orders withstand the disingenuous, not conservative, in the least, proclamations of a corrupted right-wing U.S. Supreme Court majority? I will ask my guests about that as well. Writing at the New York Times over the weekend, Dr. Leah Stokes of UC Santa Barbara opined, quote, since early 2021, congressional Democrats and President Biden have worked relentlessly to negotiate a climate policy package. When Build Back Better passed the House last fall with all Democratic votes, it included $555 billion in clean energy and climate investments. After four decades of gridlock in Congress, the Democrats were poised to finally pass a major climate bill with agreement from 49 senators. But on Thursday, one man torched the deal, and with it, the climate writes Leah Stokes, naming Mr. Manchin. By stringing his colleagues along, Mr. Manchin didn't just waste legislators' time. He also delayed crucial regulations that would cut carbon pollution. Wary of upsetting the delicate negotiations, the Biden administration has held back on using the full force of its executive authority on climate, 
over the past 18 months, likely in hopes of securing legislation first. But of course, now that that has seemingly finally and irrevocably failed, at least in this Senate, again, thanks to just one corrupt Democratic senator and 50 corrupt Republican senators, what now? In her Times op-ed, Dr. Stokes warns the stakes of delay could not be higher. Joining us now is Leah Stokes. She is the Anton Vonk Associate Professor of Political Science at UC Santa Barbara, where she's a researcher on climate and energy politics at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management. She also previously served as an environmental policy analyst for the Canadian Parliament. She currently serves as an advisor to Rewiring America and Evergreen Action and hosts her own podcast called A Matter of Degrees. Oh, Dr. Stokes, welcome back to the broadcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. So as you can tell, uh, I got a lot to ask you about, but let's start with uh, your friend and mine, Joe Manchin. Uh, as, <laughs> as much as I would love to forget about him entirely, I've long argued that he will never agree to anything that cuts carbon emissions, no matter how many times Democrats and the corporate media seem to claim that, oh, Mr. Manchin is still interested in a deal on the environment. Yet your New York Times op-ed is headlined, What Joe Manchin Cost Us. I'll bite. What has Joe Manchin cost us, Leah Stokes? Well, for the past 18 months, Senator Manchin has engaged in negotiations with the Democratic caucus in the Senate, of course, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, where he has, you know, been at the table saying what he's willing to do on climate and clean energy. And it wasn't far-fetched that he would get to yes, because they were willing to give him a lot of things that he wanted, mm -hmm. uh, things that would have helped invest in jobs in West Virginia, for example, there's a program that helps create manufacturing jobs in former coal communities. Mm -hmm. That was in this package. There was also money for things like carbon capture and sequestration, a technology that Manchin really wants to see happen, as well as hydrogen. Uh, so there was lots of reasons to believe that he would get to yes, not least the fact that he continuously said that. But on Thursday, after the Schumer team gave him everything he wanted, and he still couldn't get to yes, mm -hmm. claiming that somehow it was inflation when the reality is that economists have told us that this package would help fight inflation. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Senator Schumer finally threw up his hands and said, you're not negotiating in good faith and you're not serious about getting this done. And to what do you attribute his bad faith negotiations? Well, it's not very complicated, right? There's that Upton Sinclair uh, quote that's... Uh, hard to get a man to understand something when his paycheck uh, uh, relies on him not understanding it. Mm -hmm. Senator Manchin personally profits from the fossil fuel industry. There was really important reporting from the New York Times, which showed that he is making half a million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. That's three times more than his Senate salary mm -hmm. directly off of fossil fuels over the past decade. That's added up to five million dollars. So he is lining his pockets when it comes to the fossil fuel industry. He is personally profiting. And then when it comes to campaign contributions, mm -hmm. Senator Manchin has received more money from the fossil fuel industry than any other person in Congress, including every single Republican. In fact, he's received almost twice as much money as the next closest person, which is a Republican. So 
he is in bed with the fossil fuel industry, both for his personal profit as well as for his role as a senator. And I would add uh, to the amount of money that he personally has brought in from his family's coal business in West Virginia. Uh, I think his son is now the owner of that business, if I recall correctly. I think they make even more money than he does personally. Now, mm-hmm. uh, before we get to uh, Joe Biden and the possibilities of executive actions, uh, since this is somewhat related, the six corrupt activist right-wingers on the U.S. Supreme Court, as I see them, last month declared that the Environmental Protection Agency may not actually protect the environment by following the federal statutory mandates of the Clean Air Act or even the court's own previous rulings on this to regulate carbon emissions due to this so-called doctrine that they came up with called the Major Questions Doctrine. Now, if the court declares something to be a major question, they say experts and scientists at executive agencies may not act on it without a very, very specific directive from the non-experts in Congress to do so. I just wanted to get very quickly your reaction to the court's uh, really unprecedented ruling last month on this. Yeah, I think you're right. The Supreme Court is um, not legitimate at this point. We're talking about several Supreme Court justices who lied under oath before they were confirmed. Um, That's not something that an everyday American can do, but somehow a Supreme Court justice who gets a lifetime appointment can lie under oath to Congress. That's not acceptable in this country. It makes the court legitimate. You know, it's important to know that this um, case that they took up, West Virginia versus EPA, ironically, or perhaps on theme, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was actually about a rule from the Obama administration, which does not even exist anymore, okay? Trump repealed it, so they were really fighting with ghosts. And why did they do that? Well, they were trying to delay progress from the Biden administration, just like Senator Manchin. They were delaying the Biden administration's ability to take executive action. Now that we have that ruling, despite the really bad parts of it, such as the major question doctrine, we also have clarity. And the Biden administration can move forward with much greater speed on regulating carbon pollution from the power sector. And that isn't just a sort of option. It's actually a requirement for them to do. The Supreme Court back in 2007 ruled in a previous case, Mm -hmm. Massachusetts versus EPA, that Indeed, they had to act on climate change if it endangered Americans' health. And we know it endangers Americans' health. So what we need to see the Biden administration doing is moving much faster when it comes to power sector pollution, um, making sure that we aren't building out new dirty power plants and that we're getting rid of the pollution from the power plants that already exist. Doesn't the uh, West Virginia versus EPA, doesn't that actually uh, counter what the Supreme Court had said in the Massachusetts case? I mean, doesn't that make that null and void at this point? Uh, does does the uh, EPA have any authority whatsoever Uh, No, it didn't actually overturn that previous decision. The EPA still retains a lot of authority, and I think Mm -hmm. it's important that people understand that. Um, You know, folks were really concerned about how far they would go in that recent decision, and although the major questions doctrine is very terrible and it is basically giving a blank check to the Supreme Court to make whatever decisions they like in the future, Mm -hmm. when it came to the Clean Air Act specifically, they did not take away the Biden administration's authority. The Biden administration retains very important tools 
and they need to start using them right now. Good. So, no, the Supreme Court did not gut what the Biden administration can do. Good. Glad to hear that, uh, Leah Stokes. Yeah, a silver uh, lining yeah. or whatever. Well, we'll take it. Uh, and the question is, what will President Biden do with that? He said he will take executive actions to try and meet uh, his ambitious climate goals still. But what exactly can a president do with those powers? What actions might you expect him to take? And frankly, can any of them actually make enough of a real difference in curbing emissions that that are causing our worsening climate crisis? You know, with climate change, everything we do matters. And so the president can move on executive actions and make a big difference. It's not going to be as important and consequential as the climate bill would have been, but it can still make an important contribution. What does the Biden administration need to do? It needs to move forward on those regulations for power plants that we talked about under the Clean Air Act. It also needs to move forward on rules for clean cars and clean trucks and give California the right, through what's called a waiver, Mm -hmm. to move even faster on cleaning up trucks. It also needs to block fossil fuel projects that it was kind of dangling out there for Senator Manchin. You know, people need to understand that Senator Manchin walked away from a very good deal where he is concerned himself, where the people of West Virginia are concerned, where the businesses in West Virginia are concerned. You know, they had negotiated something for CCS, carbon capture and sequestration, for hydrogen, for Mm -hmm. nuclear for the people who live in coal communities. And he walked away from all of that. And there was also um, potentially the approval of a pipeline that he really wanted approved called the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Mm -hmm. Well, if Senator Manchin is not going to go along with what he said, then the Biden administration should be making sure that permits are blocked for those kinds of fossil fuel projects, Mm -hmm. like the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Um, They should also revoke a leasing program that they put out uh, just a couple weeks ago. Again, probably to dangle at Senator Manchin to say, hey, if you're willing to do something, we're willing to do something, too. Well, he's made it clear he's not willing to do anything. Therefore, the Biden administration should be making sure they're moving full speed ahead on blocking new fossil fuel development. I like it. Uh, sort of punish uh, Manchin at the same time. Uh, the, the president is now set to give what is being billed as a major climate speech on Wednesday in Massachusetts. Uh, there's been much talk over the past uh, 24, 48 hours about the possibility of him declaring a national climate emergency. That's something, by the way, that Senator uh, Senate uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had urged him to do just after Biden took office last year. Now, Biden is not expected to make that declaration on uh, Wednesday in Massachusetts, but Rhode Island's Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who's been a a climate champion for years now. Uh, He told the Mm -hmm. Post that the administration has, in fact, been speaking to members of Congress about this. Uh, What exactly would declaring a national climate emergency allow the president to do that he would not be able to do without such a declaration? Is is that uh, clear at all to you yet? Well, you know, this is something that the climate movement has been calling for for quite a while. I think it would help drive media attention help the American people understand the urgency of this crisis, and it would give the president some small um, additional authority. But it's not really the big win that we need. It's more about galvanizing the public and the media to help focus on how important this is and how we need to really take it on like the national security uh, emergency that it is, mm-hmm. and which, quite frankly, former military officials are telling us all of it that it poses a big threat to our national security. Mm -hmm. So it's really more about 
uh, communicating to the American people than it is about really cutting carbon pollution. If we want to move the needle substantively on carbon pollution, what we need to do is some of those other executive actions at a faster pace. Now, of course, any such executive actions or orders can simply be undone with a simple signature by his successor, no? Um, Not exactly, actually. When it comes to clean car rules, um, when it comes to Clean Air Act rules, these things cannot be repealed very quickly. There's a very complex process to both get them the regulations finalized, and therefore also to repeal them. Uh, So even the Trump administration had to go through a complex process to repeal that clean power plan, which was at issue in that recent Supreme Court decision. Mm. Um, So no, not everything can just be reversed very quickly by a future administration. Now, on the other hand, uh, just because I'm trying to find the downside, apparently, uh, (laughs) anything that this president uh, might try to do with an executive action or by declaring an emergency and so forth, couldn't all of that still be challenged? And shouldn't we expect that it will be challenged in court and then once again perhaps even blocked by the Supreme Court? Well, the Biden administration is on very sound legal footing when it comes to uh, using the Clean Air Act to regulate pollution. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Massachusetts versus EPA case said they had to, and we're talking about a law that's like, I don't know, 50, 60 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a very bedrock piece of legislation that's been used by Republicans and Democrats alike to clean up the air for the American people and their health. So I think they're actually on very clear and strong legal footing. And, you know, even if there's a case brought against it, unless there is a stay, which is what the Supreme Court did with that clean power plan in the West Virginia versus EPA case, which was completely unprecedented, mm-hmm. what a stay does is they say the, the rule can't even go into uh, effect. Right. It cannot be enforced until this winds its way through the courts. And you can see that since it took all the way through the Trump administration and deep into the Biden administration before they even came to a decision, a stay on a rule is a problematic thing. But that's very unprecedented, and it would be hard for them to do that on every single rule that the Biden administration is doing. Oh, I don't know, Leah. You may be misunderestimating this particular (laughs) Supreme Court. Uh, You write at the—I hope you're right, by the way— uh, we'll see if you are. Uh, you write at the uh, at the New York Times, uh, other Democratic leaders around the country are not waiting for Congress to act. Governor Gavin Newsom of California signed a budget bill this month with a historic $54 billion in climate investments. New York State is moving ahead with its ambitious plans to cut carbon this decade. And in Washington State, Governor Jay Inslee is leading an all-out mobilization to decarbonize from landmark building codes to bold climate goals. Well, that's three states, three big states. Uh, and I know that other uh, governors are doing more elsewhere. But is that sort of action, this sort of state by state action now, is is any of that enough to at least cumulatively make some sort of real dent in this problem as you see it? Absolutely. You know, California has been leading the country for decades now when they decided to invest in solar, helping people put solar on their through net metering and other kinds of policies, that actually brought down the cost of solar for the whole country. So now it's the Mm. case that in Texas, you can put a solar panel on your roof or a utility can put a big one on the ground for not a lot of money. And that's thanks to the leadership of California. So what we do in these early acting states, it doesn't just stay there. It spills across state borders through innovation, through job creation, and it really does help us make a progress on this issue. So, no, we should not underestimate the power that we all have. And I'll say, too, that 
Each of us as individuals should be looking at our own lives, looking at the fossil fuels we use, thinking about, do we have a car that runs on oil? Should we make a plan that our next car is an electric vehicle? You know, or if mm-hmm. we don't have a car yet, what a bike, you know, a, a bike with a little bit of power to help you bike up those hills, you mm-hmm. know, if you're in San Francisco or something. And and think about our stoves that we're using, our dirty and dangerous gas stoves that mm-hmm. are not just um, bad for the planet, but actually putting out poisonous chemicals. We're talking about carcinogens like benzene into mm-hmm. our air um, that are really bad for our health. What about getting an induction stove? And again, that doesn't cost a lot of money. People can just take a cutting board, stick it on top of their stove, and spend 50 bucks on a little induction cooktop, and mm. boom, they're cooking with magnets rather than cooking with outdated and dangerous gas. So these are the kinds of changes uh, we can make in our daily lives, whether it's an electric vehicle or a heat pump. And for Californians in particular, a lot of us are going to need air conditioning who haven't had it in the past. Mm. And a heat pump is a clean electric appliance that both heat cools your home. And Governor Newsom has actually passed incentives in that budget that will pay people $3,000 through their contractor to help them afford to put an, elect- uh, an electric heat pump into their home. Hmm. So that's the kind of thing that people should be doing. They should be looking around their own house and saying, how can I electrify? How can I make a difference on climate change? And that's something that Senator Manchin cannot stop us from doing. And, you know, for people, since you mentioned California and what Governor uh, 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 Newsom is doing, it's just a great chance to underscore here that state elections really do matter when it comes to climate action. Keep that in mind as we get closer to November. Finally, Dr. Leah Stokes, uh, perhaps to end here on an optimistic note, you write in your uh, Times op-ed this week, quote, in the long run, we are going to win. Fossil fuels are just too expensive, dirty and dangerous. Now, I actually agree with you. Uh, But why are you so confident that we will, in fact, win? Just as I said it, fossil fuels are too expensive, dirty, and dangerous. Think about looking at your gas stove with a little bit more fear. We're talking about an appliance sitting right in the heart of our homes that scientists are telling us is polluting the air, is leaking, even when it's turned off. And that dirty gas that's going right into our homes, into our own lungs, it, inc- it includes carcinogens like formaldehyde and benzene. That is scary stuff. That's not what any person wants in their own home. So the solution is not about sacrifice. I still want everybody to have a stove. <laughs> Guess what? They can have a better stove. They can have an induction stove. This is the kind of thing that's a new technology that cooks are saying is better to cook on than gas. And as much as we've been sold propaganda by the gas industry that cooking with gas is better, um, Sometimes that thing doesn't light, it makes scary clicking sounds, and it puts toxic-smelling stuff into our house. Sometimes it even blows up people's homes. So, you know, we're, we're talking about moving to the future, which is cleaner and better technology. That's what we're talking about. It's not about sacrifice. It's really about better solutions. So that's why we're going to win. Well said. I suspect anyone with an electric vehicle at this point is probably not saying, boy, have I sacrificed with this car. (laughs) Uh, No, I've saved a lot of money. I've had an electric vehicle over the last few months, and I'll tell you, I don't have to look at the price of oil at the pump. It's irrelevant to me. I'm paying like a dollar a gallon. That's basically the cost right now to uh drive an EV. It's way cheaper. Nice. 
Dr. Leah Stokes is an associate professor of political science at UC Santa Barbara. She's a researcher on climate and energy politics. You can find her work well at leahstokes.com. You can find her on the Twitters at Leah Stokes. And you can and should listen to her podcast, A Matter of Degrees, at degreespod.com. Dr. Leah Stokes, always great speaking with you. Thanks so much. And uh, boy, uh, good luck surviving this climate week, apparently. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we will. Uh, you feel feel better? Uh, I do yeah. actually. It Are does you? help to have some sense of some concrete actions that not just the Biden administration, but state and local governments can also take. Which again underscores what you've been saying all along: with state elections, local elections, all of them really, 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 really matter. Have I been saying that? Yes, and so have I. Uh, so we yeah. know that these things <laughs> really, really matter. Your turnout for your state legislature, your governor, your local. Everybody really matters now. Yeah, we're screwed. All right, quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. So, uh, Desi Doyen, a poll conducted in early May by the Pew Research Center found a majority of Americans, 58 percent, think the federal government is is doing too little to reduce the effects of global warming. Yeah. Surprised about that? I am not surprised by that at all. I'm only surprised that the number is so low. But then again, there's always that. Oh, that is not higher than 58 percent? Yeah, but that's that same 30 percent of Americans that block everything (laughs) because they're right-wingers. You're right. Uh, And speaking of which, some uh, breaking news just in that the U.S. House has passed a bill that would federally recognize same-sex marriages. Because there are now fears that the Supreme Court could nullify marriage equality. So the Democrats trying to get ahead of the game by uh, passing this bill. Of course, uh, AP is reporting the bill is almost certain to stall in the U.S. Senate. (laughs) Of course. But, you know, just underscoring how unbelievably out of touch the Republican Party and the U.S. Supreme Court is with the will of the American people. We have got to do something about that. We have got to unpack the Supreme Court by expanding it. Anyway, I suspect we'll get to that as well in the days ahead. But for today, it's still climate week around here. It's our latest Green News Report. What we're seeing here indeed is an example of reaping what we've sown. Simultaneous record deadly heat waves strike across the globe. Last month, tied for the hottest June ever recorded globally, plus... People like Manchin are intentionally sabotaging the president's agenda, what the American people want, what a majority of us in the Democratic caucus want. Senator Joe Manchin again tanks Biden's climate and clean energy agenda. Tanks for nothing. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. You have this kind of heat over major populations. You get a big draw on that electric demand. And it looks like we may have just switched over 
the generator power. Our lights just went out. That's right. The lights went out in the middle of the weather forecast warning about power outages on Houston's KTRK. It happened twice. He <laughs> did it again. <laughs> this is your Green News Report. Is the AC on, Melanie? That's the, that's the important thing right there. Okay, Desi Doyen, it's hard to not see this as exactly what you and so many climate scientists have been warning about so long as the globe is pretty much just melting down this week. (laughs) It sure does seem like it. A persistent, intense, scorching heat wave continues to broil the northern hemisphere with historic new high temperature records across Europe, Asia, and the United States. In China, a billion people are suffering under extended record extreme heat and humidity which is forecast to last through at least mid-August. Portugal hit a new all-time national record high of 117 degrees. In Spain and Portugal, the blistering heat has killed more than a thousand people. In France, more than 15,000 have been evacuated from raging wildfires. In Italy, heat and drought have decimated a third of rice and corn crops. The UK issued its first ever national heat emergency, with flights and rail service curtailed due to buckling rails and runways. The heat is straining the capacity of emergency services to respond Respond, and the death and disruption are a clear signal that society is not ready for today's climate impact, much less even worse heat events to come as the planet warms. So it's going really well. A new study projects that heat-related deaths will triple over coming decades unless governments accelerate climate action. And on top of all that, NASA just announced that June 2022 tied with June 2020 for the hottest June on record globally since record keeping began in the 1880s, which is extra disturbing because we are currently in a cooling La Nina phase in the Pacific Ocean, which normally cools global temperatures. So if we were in the middle of El Nino Instead, these hot temperatures would be that much hotter. And an El Nino is coming. Oh, great. The unforgiving heat everywhere has laid bare how challenging extreme temperatures will increasingly be in everyday life as man-made global warming increases the frequency, intensity, and duration of these extreme events. Today's extremes were accurately predicted by climate scientists for decades, according to Dr. Michael Mann on CNN. The impacts of climate change aren't subtle anymore. We're seeing them play out in real time in the form of these unprecedented extreme weather disasters. But what the models do tell us is that if we if we reduce our carbon emissions to zero, the planet will stop warming up. And when the planet stops warming up, then these other impacts tend to stabilize. Well, that's a pretty big if, Dr. Mann. Against that backdrop of weather disasters, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, a millionaire coal baron, has again quashed President Biden's climate and clean energy agenda, this time saying he wants to wait until the economy improves. Even though numerous independent economic analyses confirm that Biden's climate legislation would actually reduce inflation while also preparing the nation for climate impacts that are already costing the U.S. hundreds of billions of dollars a year in damages. Biden said in response he will use every authority as president to enact climate policy through the executive branch, but that approach is vulnerable to legal challenges and the whims of future presidents. 
Manchin receives more campaign donations from the oil and gas industry than any other politician. In an interview with ABC, independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont excoriated Manchin. This is an existential threat to humanity. And what this election must be about is whether or not we're going to vote for candidates who are prepared to stand up for working people, stand up for the planets, and have the courage to take on the billionaire class. Unless more Democrats are elected to the U.S. Senate in November, Manchin's sabotage means the U.S. will be unlikely to meet its Paris Climate Agreement targets, and China's state-subsidized industries will have free reign to further dominate the global clean energy sector. Manchin will never support anything that lowers carbon emissions because it also lowers the amount of money in his pocket. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. And the money kept rolling in from every side. Yep. <laughs> That's what it's about when it comes to Joe Manchin. Indeed it is. His greed knows no bounds. No, it don't. And no matter what it does, as as uh, Leah Stokes said, no matter what it does to, you know, his kids and his grandkids, I, I, you know, he'll have a lot of money. We'll see how his grandkids feel about it in a few Ye- generations. Yeah, probably not even that long. By the way, speaking of money uh, rolling in, oh, it's around this time of year that we like to do what uh, is our sort of our de facto summer uh, uh, fundraiser at bradblog.com. Oh, that's right. If you haven't uh, stopped by lately, I, I think I mentioned a week or two ago, we've lost a number of our regular uh, subscribers because yes. of the, uh, I don't think it's anything that I did. I think it's just the environment, <laughs> uh, the economic situation these days. At least that's what they told me. So we're hoping to replace them. If you uh, enjoy the Bradcast, if you read bradblog.com, if you haven't signed up for a subscription of any amount you like to help support our work or even a one-time donation, it would be greatly appreciated by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And a great opportunity to wish Brad a happy birthday because today is his birthday. Happy birthday, Brad. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Thus, our de facto summer fun drive. Anyway, thank you very much, Des, our producer. Thanks to my guest today, Dr. Leah Stokes of UC Santa Barbara, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. We want to keep those uh, archives available to everyone for free, no paywall, and, of course, that's why we need your help. You can also drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, stay cool. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Woo!